morning, everyone. We have a bunch of our men that are gone this morning at our men's uh, safari retreat. Let's, out of curiosity, they, they actually are probably having a Sunday service here, so there's no men amongst us that was there this weekend, just to check. Oh, Bill, was it good? Good time. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, if you have a Bible, open up to page 884. We're continuing our study in the book of Romans. As you're turning there, uh, so a couple months ago during March, it was a bit of a busy season, and we had missions conference coming up, and David Erickson was going to be doing the preaching, so I thought it'd be a good idea for me to take a couple days off during that week just to kind of relax a little bit and get some uh, chores around the house that desperately needed to be done, taken care of. It turns out, though, that the Lord had different plans for me as I ended up spending that entire week on a week-long criminal trial over in Newport court system, and I happened to be the jury foreman for the case. Now, yeah, that's just the way things go, right? Now, it had been about 20 years since I actually served in a jury, because typically when they find out that I'm clergy, they kind of let me go during the jury selection process, and I thought that was going to happen this time too, so my plans were not going to be derailed, but it came down to, no joke, between me and a Catholic bishop to be chosen. And this guy, he showed up, this Catholic bishop showed up in the full clerical outfit. He had the cassock on, he had the mini cape, the cincture rope, and he was even sporting Jesus sandals. Now, I'm pretty convinced he probably wasn't real, because, I mean, I don't, I don't know Catholic bishops that dress like that every day walking around, and I kind of wanted to say, dude, are you just milking this because you know? Because I think what the attorneys thought was, hey, at least we've got to have clergy, at least get the guy who wears jeans, okay? So, so I ended up becoming part of this jury that took up my entire week. Now, thankfully, the jury deliberations went really quickly because the charges against the defendant were absolutely clear. The evidence was so apparent, and the guilt was undeniable. In fact, I thought, and I think the entire jury believed the same thing, there was either complete foolishness or complete arrogance that this trial even made it to court. The defendant had no merit to plead. He had no excuse to make. And all he could do was stand there silently as the law condemned him as guilty. Now, if you're a Christian and, and you're awake to the Christian worldview, you cannot help but to see it on display everywhere because it is. And as that, that morning, as I stood in the jury box delivering the verdict, I realized that there was really only one thing that was different between the defendant and myself, and that was the courtroom. You see, this defendant stood before an earthly court and an earthly judge, and one day I will stand in a court before a judge, but it won't be of earthly nature. It will be a heavenly court and a heavenly judge. In that way, that's the only difference between that man and everyone in this room as well. And like that man, we will have no merit to plead. We will have no excuse to make. The charges will be clear, the evidence apparent, and the guilt will be undeniable. I say that because that's exactly the message that we see here in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, and that's a passage we are going to study together this morning. If you've turned there, would you stand with me as I read these verses from God's Word? Paul writes this, Romans chapter 3, verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. None is righteous, 
No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. When I train men who are learning to preach, I typically ask them, give me the sermon in a sentence, right? Anyone can blather on for 30, 40 minutes, but you really know your passage when you can tell it to me in one single sentence. Sometimes I call it the the 3 a.m. question, and what I mean is if I call you at 3 a.m., all groggy, whatever it might be, can you tell me in one sentence what your sermon is? It's a very helpful process. Well, as we've just heard, it's pretty easy to realize what the sermon in a sentence here is, You're a sinner, and you're condemned. What's the application? Repent, right? In some sense, that's the sermon. We could be done at this point. That's true. It, It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. The text is pretty clear. You do not require knowledge of the Greek. You don't need a Bible college degree degree to know what's happening here. In essence, Paul has been acting as a prosecuting attorney starting in chapter 1, verse 18, and here he's bringing his entire case, and he's beginning to wrap it up, and he's making it all clear, and here's the charge right here in verse 9. The charge is all of humanity is under sin. And then what's he going to do as a prosecuting attorney in verses 10 through uh, through 12? He's going to present evidence of the charge seen negatively. Now, I don't mean by negatively, oh, that's bad. I mean in what's not happening. He's going to prove that evidence. And then in verses 13 to 18, he's going to give evidence of the charge that we're under sin seen positively. And I don't mean, oh, that's good. I mean, now what is happening? So I'm using negatively and positively slightly differently. And then finally in verses 19 to 20, he's going to deliver the verdict from the charge. And the verdict is we are guilty. And so let's look at them one at a time. The charge against us, we are under sin, Paul says as he concludes this masterful argument for the last two chapters. All of humanity, the religious, the irreligious, the moral, the immoral, the Jew, the Gentile, everyone is under sin. Our passage this morning ends the argument in effect that Paul began in chapter 1, verse 18, and it answers a question that you may have asked when we looked at that. So flip over back to chapter 1, verse 18. This is what Paul writes. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And the question we might have as we read that is, well, why? Why does humanity suppress the truth? Now, you might be tempted to say, well, it it says right there in the text, by their unrighteousness. You see that right there. But that prepositional phrase describes the means or how humanity suppresses the truth. We suppress God's truth by simply engaging ourselves in a life of sin. 
You see, verse 18 of chapter 3, in in one sense, that's the the other bookend of what started in chapter 1, verse 18, answers, really gives us the question. So look at chapter 3, verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So chapter 1, verse 18, Paul begins to make the argument. He ends it in chapter 3, verse 18, and he's saying relatively the same thing. By their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth, and now he tells us why. Because there is no fear of God in their eyes. Because as verse 9 says, humanity is under sin. So here's how the logic works. Chapter 3, verse 9, the charge. Humanity is under sin. As a result, verse 18, there is no fear of God in their eyes. As a result, chapter 1, verse 18, they will suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And as of a result of that, therefore, the wrath of God is now coming to humanity. That's how the logic works in these three chapters put together. Now, it's really important to notice what Paul says here in chapter 3, verse 18, and, and follow, or chapter 3, verse 9 and following. Notice he doesn't say that humanity is guilty of committing sins, right, in the plural. He says humanity is under sin, singular. The distinction is huge. Friends, the predicament that the human race finds ourselves in isn't that we are guilty of committing individual sins, although that is true, we do that. The reality of the predicament is we are actually under the power of sin itself, which is why Paul says we are under sin. And friends, in in many Eastern cultures today, like ancient cultures, the, the worldview is they see that we are living under dominating powers, especially if you talk to any of our missionaries in more, more kind of primal areas. They see the world and humanity as living under astral powers, general and local deities, magic spells, and so on and so forth. In the West, we don't view the world that way. We see ourselves living under political powers and sociological realities and those kinds of things. But it's the same kind of concept. We've just changed the the mythology, so to speak. Now, growing up in Hawaii, I know a little bit about this worldview. My friends and I knew very well to respect the heiaus, which were the sacred lands. Don't don't trample into the night marcher trails, right? Watch out for the Menehune lands or ponds, and don't upset Pele or Maui. Uh, And we all understood that because we lived in their world, the islands were their domain, and we just lived under their power. And that's just the way I grew up in the islands of Hawaii. Everyone kind of understood that. You see, by saying that all of humanity is under sin, Paul pictures sin as a ruthless taskmaster and all of humanity as sin's helpless slaves. We are functioning under this power of sin. And John Stott says this, Sin is on top of us. It weighs us down and is a crushing burden. Now, believe it or not, there's something still in our language of this type. Have you ever heard the expression where people say, I'm under so much pressure. I'm under stress. I'm under these deadlines. Now, what do we mean when we say that? We are saying that, that I am dominated. I am controlled by this thing that is above me, and it's dictating the way I'm going to have to live and respond in this moment. And so when Paul says humanity is under sin, what Paul is saying is that we simply can't help it. 
We have to. We're feeling the weight and the domination of it, and so we must obey it. Thomas Boston, he was a Puritan writer, he talked about how humanity exists in four stages throughout history, throughout redemptive history. I think it's really important to notice this. Number one, in the creation, and this follows a flow of how all of humanity is in Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, glorification. When we were first created, we were able to sin, and we were able not to sin. But when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and plunged all of us into sin, we went to the second stage, not able not to sin. Not able not to sin. We are under sin. But because of what Christ has done, humanity is now, or you can be in Christ in this third stage where you are able not to sin. That doesn't mean you won't. It's just now by the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of sin has been broken entirely over you, and you are now able not to sin. You don't have to submit to that taskmaster. And one day in glorification, this is last phase, we will be not able to sin. Right now in human history, all of humanity lives under number two and number three. Not able not to sin if you're outside of Christ. You have to do it. You are under sin. But in Christ, again, you are able not to sin. But friends, if we're going to have a correct biblical theology of sin, we cannot just think of sin as the bad that we do, because more often than not, than not, sin is the good that we choose to ignore. And so Paul is going to marshal up this evidence against us of this charge seen negatively in verses 10 through 12. I want you to notice that in these three verses, Paul makes seven absolute statements about how we've gone just completely lights out to the things of God. Let me read them to you. None is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. No one does good, not even one. All have turned aside, becoming worthless. Ugh. When I read this text this past week, I mean, I just felt that heaviness. This is not a good picture, but it is what God says is the predicament of humanity. Now, Paul, if you have a Bible, some of you may notice that the text itself is kind of um, indented and put in the middle. That's where translators are trying to show you that this is actually a quotation from someplace else, and some of your good Bibles will put a mark of what verses Paul is actually account reading from, because actually Paul is taking from about seven different Old Testament passages and stringing them together. In these three verses, Paul is citing from Psalm chapter 14 and Psalm 53, particularly Psalm 14, and I'm actually going to turn there. If you want to go with me to Psalm 14, you can. Psalm 14 is particularly interesting because in Psalm 14, it's, it's actually reminiscent of God. And by the way, it, it's pulling from the, uh, the, the flood narrative in Genesis chapter 6. Um, in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel narrative, it's very reminiscent of those passages. Let me read Psalm 14 to you. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. 
the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So Paul is quoting from Psalm 14. So what's going on in Psalm 14? It is reminiscent of God in Genesis 6 and 11 looking down upon his creation and saying there is nothing but corruption in, hum in humanity. They're just destroying each other, and they're destroying the creation. And God says, there is nothing redeemable about this. The only thing that's, that can be done is divine retribution. And if you know the stories, that's exactly what takes place. Now, there's a lot of links between Psalm 14 and Genesis 6. We see that. And even into Romans 3. So by Paul quoting Psalm 14 in Romans 3, he's saying the same kind of thing as God looks upon humanity. says the only response is divine judgment to all of this corruption. Back to Romans 3. Humanity is condemned because what it has not done did you notice that, right? None is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. No one does good. So humanity is being condemned for what we have not done. And I pause there for a moment because I know in our culture that can seem a bit odd because even if you're a Christian, we tend to think of sins as things that we actually do, not things that we don't do. But that's exactly what Romans 3, 10 through 12 is saying. God, in the, in the courtroom of, of eternity, is finding humanity guilty because of our sin of what we have not done. I was listening to a sermon jam. I found this on the web. Stop. I was listening to a sermon jam a few years ago. Um, and a sermon jam is where a lot of these hip-hop artists have been taking great sermons and putting it to beats, and it's, it's been fantastic. And I don't remember the name of the sermon, but John Piper answered the question of what is sin. Notice what he says about sin. Sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not revered, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised. The truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the persons of, person of God not loved, that is sin. Wow. And Paul is saying that all of humanity, when it has turned from the very source of beauty, truth, and goodness, when it turned aside from God, and in verse 12 he says, we have become worthless. Friends, if we tend to think of sin, and, and maybe you're a Christian and you're sitting here thinking, I'm not really, I mean, I'm a sinner because I've got to say that because that's what the Bible teaches, but I don't think I'm not like a sinner deserving of wrath because you tend to think of the things that I don't murder, I don't do these kinds of things. Friends, are you not honoring God? Are you not reverencing Him? Are you not esteeming Him? Are you not treasuring Him? Are you not savoring Him? The Bible says on your sin. See, 
the charge against us is very clearly seen from this negative light. We are not doing the very thing we should be doing. But like any good attorney, Paul doesn't end there. It's not just what humanity is not doing, the negative. He also proves the charge against us in a positive sense. In other words, what we are doing, and we switch to verses 13 to 18. Now, as we go to these, two ver- these, these uh, six verses, notice two sets of absolute comprehensive language describing one horrible reality here. One um, describes kind of the, the, the totality of human life, and the other is going to describe the end result of that path. So, so let me just read them to you. Here's the first one describing the totality of human life from verses 13 to 18. Paul talks about throats, tongues, lips, mouths, feet, and, uh, feet and eyes. What's he talking about? He's talking about all that the human being kind of expresses from their mouth the paths they walk on and what they set before their eyes, a totality of human existence. And notice what he says is the end of all of that in these adjectives that he uses. Grave, deception, venom, curses, bitterness, blood, ruin, and misery. And it all ends with the understatement of the century in verse 17, the way of peace they have not known. Wow. So what Paul is doing is he's describing human life, the things that come out of our mouths from our heart, the paths that our feet walk on, the things we put before our eyes, and because we've turned aside from God and become worthless, the end result of that is all of this horrific language we see there. Friends, what this passage is describing, Romans chapter 3, verse 9 through 20, is what theologians have long since called the doctrine of total depravity. And this passage is one of the most explicit sections in Scripture on that, that topic, that doctrine. Right? You, you cannot read this text and simply say that mankind is generally good. No. God's Word is painfully clear on this issue. You are not good. In fact, you are totally depraved. It's right here, literally in black and white. Last week, I was having this conversation with my dentist. It's just kind of conversations you have when you're a pastor. And, and he's of Hindu background, married to a Catholic, so he's raising their kids in, like, I guess, a compromise by sending them to a Christian church. And, and he says to me, and, you know, we have this conversation a little bits and forth, and he's saying, you know, I, I like religion, because religion tells us that we, we should be good because God made us good. All religions teach that. And, you know, I'm sitting there, I said, I said mm, no, that, that's, er, stop, that's, that's exactly the opposite of what Christianity teaches. And he's starting to look, he's like, what are you getting at? I said, no, no, the Bible actually teaches we're totally depraved. We are wicked to our core. We're not good at all. And he's like, well, no, wait a minute. No, religion is a good thing. I'm, I'm supporting what you do, pastor. I said, no, 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 we're not good. Why would you think we're good? He says, well, because we are good people. I said, let me ask you something. Why are you good? And he was just confused because here's a pastor convincing him that trying to be good is pointless. So he says, well, you be good because that's the best way you get along in life and with people. And I said, oh, okay, so at the end of the day, your good has a utilitarian value to get you what you want in life. So it's not about being good, it's about getting what you want. And once goodness stops getting you what you want, you will revert to being bad to get what you want. And he's like, well, that's not what I mean. I said, no, of course that's not what you mean. But isn't that why you're good? 
And when good stops getting you what you want, you will be bad because in your heart, you're not good. Now, just a tip. Don't talk like that to the person that's about to go in your mouth with a needle and pliers. <laughs> and he actually said that. He's like, oh, you know, we're going to have a different conversation. The point simply is the Bible does not teach that humanity is good. The Bible teaches we are depraved. Now, so I gave him my business card. I said, we've got to follow up this conversation. Hopefully, he'll follow up with me. But I, so I want to be clear, though. When we talk about total depravity, it's not that we're saying or the Bible is saying that every single person is as bad as we could possibly be. The biblical teaching on total depravity isn't saying that everyone everywhere is conscientiously trying to, or consciously trying to be as bad as they possibly could. Like we're walking around going, I'm going to steal candy from babies, and then I'm going to push an old lady into the street, man, I'm going to laugh walking away doing that. That's not what total depravity means. That's not the teaching of total depravity. J.I. Packer says this in his concise theology. We have it in the book spot. No one is as bad as they might be. On the other hand, no one is as good as they should be. Very true. Friends, the concept of total depravity means that there is not a single aspect of your humanity that isn't radically affected and twisted by sin. Sin's effect upon us is total in its extent, not necessarily in the degree. Does that make sense? Total depravity means that every aspect of your humanity is impacted by sin, including your intellect and your emotions. Now, in our culture, we have this weird relationship between intellect and emotions, head and heart. We kind of understand that. We're, we kind of agree that, oh, your mind is bad, right? The, the way to, to blessing, and a lot of the religions teach us, is get away from your mind and go by your emotions, go by your feelings. And as, as an evangelical church, we tend to agree. We give feelings a pass, don't we? we? We tend to give what we feel about things a pass. How many times I've had people tell me, even though they're doing something completely wrong and against Scripture, but I feel, I feel this is right. I feel God wants me to do this. And I just simply say, well, you're wrong because your feelings are sinful. <gasps> what would you say? My feelings are, are wrong? Then my feelings are, are, are sinful? No. How can it be wrong to follow my heart? Well, Jeremiah says the heart is deceitfully wicked and mysterious. Who can know it? <gasps> no. We follow our dreams and they become reality. They can't. I feel this and it's right. Friends, and you're chuckling because you know people who thought that way. Maybe you've thought that way kind of. But you also know that's not biblical theology. That's, that's Disney theology, that however we feel, we follow our dreams and they become reality. It doesn't matter what reality is, just how you feel about it's important. And how many people crash their lives in a ditch because they're following their feelings? 
And I got a great example of this in this video. What a mind-blowing finish to an incredible game tonight with Charlie Sanders winning the game in literally the last second. Uh, unbelievable, truly spectacular. Charlie Sanders, how does it feel? Hey, y'all want to say something to everybody watching? Yo, you can do anything. Anything's possible. The world is yours. Charlie, did you think that that game was going to end that way tonight? Yo, there are no limits, all right? You can swim across the Atlantic. You can jump real high and touch the moon. Fantastic. Charlie Sanders, fresh <laughs> off of his uh, victory, uh, just feel like he's ready to touch the moon. I can fly. <laughs> Anybody can fly. If you believe in yourself the way I believe in myself tonight, you will fly. And what's next for Charlie Sanders and the Orange Kids, Man? you can actually fly. No, no, not, well, not literally. Yes. Literally, kids, young kids, I want you to go up on your roofs right now. Wait, what? Fly into the night sky. Okay. People will see you flying, and you can do anything. You can do anything. Okay, well, we, 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 uh, we just want to remind the kids that, of course, you cannot actually fly, kids. Come on, y'all, screw that negativity, man. Hey, boys and girls, ages 8 through 12, yo, don't let nobody ever tell you what you can and cannot do. All the preteen children out there, listen to my voice. You are even Okay, well, obviously, we understand that Charlie is super excited right now and that no one is actually immortal. No Kids, you can turn yourself into a car and have a friend drive you onto the freeway. Okay, no, well, that's just a metaphor, kids. It's not. Just you a metaphor. still have the power of childish innocence. Get a friend on your back and make a beeline for the next ramp to the freeway, y'all. Okay, don't do it. To the he's, freeway. He's speaking figuratively, no, folks. Once you get just... there, ain't nothing figurative about this. You will turn into a robot. First and foremost, I just want to say to the 12 families who lost children, I'm sorry. My statements were irresponsible. I've subsequently looked up the terms literally and metaphorically and found that whereas I was not incorrect, they did not mean what I thought they had meant. <laughs> okay. Obviously, that's an over-the-top satire. But doesn't that capture the, the spirit of our age? It's just, my, I just however I feel, I'm going to do that. Friends, the doctrine of total depravity is a safeguard against that. It reminds us that there isn't a single aspect of our lives, intellectually, emotionally, relationally, that does not have to come under the lordship of Christ. Everything needs to be put under his lordship because sin has twisted us and has deformed us intellectually, relationally, even our desires, our hopes and dreams and values. We want to submit that to the lordship of Christ. And so, friends, don't just seek advice. Seek biblical, godly counsel in your life. Check out what the Word has to say about your circumstances. The boy that you're dating, the career that you're pursuing, the house that you're buying, the deal that you're closing, the friendship that you're starting, everything and anything, God's Word is sufficient for you. Seek God, don't become worthless. That is how you know the way of peace. You walk by his paths, which are spelled out in his word. And can I say I am encouraged as one of the pastoral staff to, to be hearing more and more, hey, I, I want to seek counsel. Can we get together? And, and it's not 
on the back end because life has just crashed in a ditch because they've been living how they want to live, not thinking about the Word of God, and now there's consequences. It's actually on the front end. I want to know what God's Word says on this. Can we get together? And I'm getting more and more encouraged that we're sitting out. We're happy to talk to people and help them out of the ditch. God's Word is powerful for that. But I'm so much more happy to have conversations ahead of time. I encourage you, do that more and more as you get into the Word of God. Now, the truth is, you'll be the exception because that's not normal. Because of the fundamental nature of sin has made us turn aside from God, and if sin's power over you has been broken and you're a Christian, then I want to encourage you, then be conscious, self-conscious every day. I've got to get God's counsel on this. On every situation, I've got to talk to godly, wise people. Not just their advice. We say this in the biblical counseling class all the time. People don't need advice. They don't need your experience. They need the Word of God. Get that from Scripture. Unfortunately, as Romans 3 makes clear, most of humanity will not do that, which is why we are led to the actual charge or the verdict in verses 19 through 20. And the key phrase I want to point your attention to is that second half of verse 19. But so, so let me read it again. Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Wow. Friends, this might be shocking to hear, but God's law is not given to us so that we might try to live up to it. It was given to us to show us the impossibility of it. Now, real quick, there, there, when we talk about God's law, and there's a specific term in reference to the Old Testament, the Mosaic law, but we're talking about the entire Old Testament. As Christians, we're talking about the whole Word of God. So when I say God's law, I'm talking about the whole thing, okay? Traditionally, there are three uses for the Word of God, and I put them in metaphors so they're easy to understand. Number one, and this is historical theology here, we, the Word of God is a window, a window that we look out and see just the beauty and splendor of God and His character as expressed in the law, His justness, His fairness, His love, His compassion, His holiness, all that, and we are to long for that beautiful vista as we look out the window and go, man, that's what I want. A second use of the Word of God is as a mirror, as we look at it and see, I am so not this. And we see our failure against the beauty as we look out the window and we look at our mirror and go, I am the opposite of that. The third use, so one's a window, one's a mirror. The third one, historically, we called it a cage. That's, that's my way of coming up with it. That the Word of God actually is a restraint on the evil of society so we know what is wrong and there's consequences for it. And so the Word of God is a window, it's a mirror, it's a cage. But it was never given to us to say, yeah, I can do that. Because we can't. Look at the end of verse 20. It says it. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Friends, the reason the law of God will never justify sinners is precisely because the function of the law of God is to expose and condemn their sin. Put another way, morality is there to show you just how immoral you actually are. Now, if you've been at our church for a few years, you're familiar with the term legalists, right? 
or antinomian, right? Legalist is that person who's, who's trying to do everything according to the law. They're going to live their lives this way and make sure everyone lives just that certain way. And then there's an antinomian, which comes from the Greek, two Greek words that means no law at all. They're the people like, ah, forget the rules. I'm going to do whatever I want. Everyone in this room is either a legalist or an antinomian. That's how it goes. Everyone in this room is one of those two things, but they're both relating to the law incorrectly. The legalist is trying to establish their self-righteousness through the law by obeying it. The antinomian is trying to establish their self-righteousness by just getting rid of the law. You see, one takes on the burden of the law wearily. The other one tries to cast it off. They're both looking at the law incorrectly. And we're all those people. We're one or the other, either a legalist or an antinomian. But the law wasn't intended to do those things. It wasn't intended to establish our righteousness. The law is a relentless taskmaster. And you're under sin, under the law. The goal isn't to try to please it, but to drive you to cry out for deliverance from it. Listen to Martin Luther in his commentary in Galatians. Um, actually, I want to go to Galatians chapter 3. It was very insightful when he wrote this, so I think it'd be good to read it to you and then read his quote on it. Galatians chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, uh, Paul writes this, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ might be given to those who believe. This is what Luther wrote. The principal point of the law is to make men not better but worse. That is to say, it showeth, old English here, it showeth unto them their sin that by the knowledge thereof they may be humbled terrified, bruised, and broken, and by this means may be driven to seek grace and so come to that blessed seed. He's talking about Christ. So friends, I hope you don't walk away this morning from the study saying, okay, I will try harder, I'll do better, because you should know by now, A, you won't, B, because you can't, unless you are no longer under the law, but in Christ. At the end of three days of evidences and witnesses, we were released in the jury deliberation room. And all of us had one burning question on our minds. And the question was this, where's Scratch? Now, I don't remember what his real name was, but throughout the entire trial, Scratch was a key witness, this one person who could have made the entire difference for this man who was on trial. The entire case would have turned on the testimony of this one man, this one witness. The defendant would have been declared not guilty and let go had this witness shown up to testify on his behalf. And I sat through the whole trial, and every night I'd come home and talk to my wife, and I'm like, why doesn't the defense bring this one witness, this scratch? He's the key to it all. And it turns out every juror was going crazy with the same question. They all agreed it would change their decision on the verdict entirely. The truth of it is, we, I'll never know and we'll never know why scratch never showed up. Either he didn't exist 
or he was an unreliable and unfaithful witness that did not show up. That's the second thing that makes me different from this man. When I'm in that heavenly courtroom, I will have a witness. I will have a reliable testimony. Someone will take the stand on my behalf. And what will go on to the record is not what I did or did not do, because that faithful witness and his testimony will make all the difference in the world. Not my actions or inactions, but the words of that one testimony, that one witness. And exactly how that works how we get from being under from being guilty under sin to set free in Christ, that's what we get into next time as Paul gives us the predicament for the human problem in Romans 3, 21 to 26. I hope you come back for that. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and what can we say other than your word condemns humanity? And the evidence is just apparent, both in what we do not do as well as what we do do and we stand condemned. But Lord, we know when we have to face the judge, it won't be on our own merits because we have a faithful witness. We have a reliable testimony on our behalf that will not only set us free, but declare us righteous. And Lord, I guess that's the third difference. On that day, it won't be that, it's not just that I will be standing in a heavenly courtroom, not an earthly courtroom. I will have a faithful witness, and not only will I just be declared not guilty, but I'll be declared, we will be declared righteous. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone in this room that has not put their trust in that faithful witness, Jesus Christ, that they would do so, so that when they stand before the judge of the universe, they can be declared righteous because of Christ. And we thank you for him. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.